attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our generous sponsors, BetterHelp and Arcat.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Today, Bill Mandara, CEO of Mancini Duffy, is back, and he brought friends. Bill Mandara, Joseph Levi, and Ben Alper, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Hello there. Yeah, it's good to have you guys here. Bill Mandara, you've been with us before, back in October 2022. That was episode 479. You originally came on the show to talk about TSX, which is what we're going to talk about today, a building, a development in New York City. But I always dive into the people. I really love the stories behind the project, behind the architects. And so you and I talked about the firm at Mancini, your transformation, and your journey to lead the organization in that conversation. Mancini Duffy is an over 100-year-old architecture firm. And today, it's one of the cutting-edge, technology-driven architecture firms in the world. And so fascinating conversation. So go back to episode 479. Have a listen to that. Today, we're going to talk about TSX Broadway, and we have the team with us that helped develop that project. We'll talk a little bit about what it is and how it is and all those things. If you want to learn more about Bill and his origin story, go back to episode 479. We talked about all those things. We also talked about how Bill and I went to the same high school. (laughs) He still lives in the town where my parents live, Paramus, New Jersey. And so go back and listen to that. But today, we also have Joseph Levi. He is the construction project manager on the project with Pavarini McGovern. And he brings more than 20 years of experience to his role as construction manager. 
He currently serves as a core and shell project manager of the project, TSX Broadway in Times Square. That's a new 550,000 square foot, 48 story tower in New York City in Times Square. It incorporates numerous exclusive features, including a permanent outdoor stage, 10 floors of flexible retail and experiential retail space, and it has a 600 plus room hotel. It's a massive project. And it's in the heart of Times Square. It's a fascinating project. Ben Alper is the engineer. Joined Severud Associates in 2005. He steadily progressed upward through the ranks. And in 2020, was promoted to associate principal. Throughout his career, Ben has taken on increasingly challenging projects, including TSX Broadway, and worked with Weeksville Heritage Center in Brooklyn and the LA Forum renovation in California. So we have the team. We have the heart of this project team with us today to talk about TSX. Typically, I dive into the origin stories of the people. Today, I want to dive into the origin stories of TSX because this is a fascinating project. So I want to jump right into that project. And I want to start with Bill. Can you just give us sort of an overall sort of 30,000 foot description of what TSX is? Where is it? And how did Mancini get involved? Sort of give us the baseline of what this project's all about. Sure thing. So TSX, where it is, it's in the heart of Times Square along 47th Street. What it is was taking what was ostensibly an underused piece of real estate, which was the Palace Theater and the old Doubletree Hotel, and turning it into a purpose-driven building by moving things around and doing some things that at the time seemed not necessarily impossible, but a little odd, a little peculiar or unorthodox in order to create this space in the middle of Times Square, where obviously it's pretty hard to create some space. So the overarching part of the project really was the lifting of the Palace Theater, which, you know, Ben's team and Joe's team and lots of other teams as well, but, you know, really put together a lot to, to figure that out and make that work. And then by lifting the Palace Theater, we were able to create this one-of-a-kind space out onto Times Square that you mentioned includes retail space. It includes a stage that goes to Times Square. It includes a state-of-the-art new hotel that we built on top of it, as well as outdoor terrace spaces. And it's really a place like no other. And all of that was basically done by taking the space that was underutilized. When you walk through Times Square, there was your typical Broadway lobby to a theater where a bunch of people crammed in and out to try and get in and go out and you know have a little smoke break or something at intermission. And we relocate that to 47th Street, in which you have an entrance that brings you up to a third floor lobby, and then take all of that space and make it used for this purpose-driven building. Wow, that's amazing. So Palace Theater is an historic theater in New York City, right? And so I could imagine when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, there's this underused building in Times Square, right? Times Square, for anybody who doesn't know what Times Square is, that's where the ball drops at the new year. Lights, you know, signage, branding everywhere, right? And the buildings around it are all covered with signage, iconic buildings, essentially. And so there's this double tree hotel, sort of nondescript building, and the Palace Theater, which is his historic building. And you want to put a new state-of-the-art, multi-story skyscraper in its place, but not destroy the theater. And in fact, not only not destroy it, move it so it's in a different place 
access from a different location. That sounds like a massive project, just that alone. How did you do that? I'm not sure who I should talk to next in terms of <laughs> Ben's the <laughs> well, structural guy and I, Joseph's the project manager or the construction manager. How did that happen? I mean, there were several iterations of this project before it came to us, involving everything from a roller coaster to God knows what and in that space. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, it's not just everything you described, if it was just that would be challenging enough. But because the existing building was overbuilt, we had to really go through a lot of work to maintain the floor area of the building in order to keep it an alteration, which is where Joe's team and Ben's team, along with, with our team and many other teams as well, really, really had a lot of hard work. So as far as figuring that out and figuring how to support the theater and support the building and all that good stuff while lifting the theater, I'll leave that to Ben and then to Joe on how that was actually executed. Ben, is that something that your team has done before? I don't think anyone's done it before. So no, I guess we haven't done it that before. But I'll add on to lifting the theater because that's like, you know, the juicy part. There's a couple of things we lose, which is we actually added the basement below the theater. So we had one cellar. We dug out a second cellar, right? So the building was up on stilts while we dug out below the legs. And when we lifted the theater, we lifted it right into the transfer structure of the old building. Um, which required us to put this new transfer structure. So we had these sort of like big pieces, again, all related to the repositioning, but we had all these big pieces. So it had to come together. So how old was the original theater? 1920s, Bill? What year was it? Do you remember exactly? It's approximately 100 years old. Yeah, it started off as an old vaudeville theater. And then the last show that was there was SpongeBob. And hopefully the new <laughs> show will be something a little, a little more highbrow, I guess. And what was the construction method? A masonry building? Old unreinforced masonry walls all around. Pretty classic for that era. Yeah. Steel frame on the inside. I mean, as buildings go, you know, you can't get something, you know, more solid than, you know, these thick exterior masonry walls. And that helped us a lot. Yeah. The fact that we had sort of this rigid outside box with sort of a hollow inside, which is not really how we think of theaters. But if you actually, right, if you're sitting in the theater and you're looking around, you got walls on the sides and on a roof on the top and you got some slab on the orchestra and a couple of balconies, but really it's hollow in the center. And we used that to our benefit as we lifted it. So how did that benefit you? So most of the load is actually on the exterior walls. The whole roof transfers to the exterior walls, and the walls are all masonry, so very heavy. So we added a concrete ring beam around the perimeter, which is a concrete beam that we built in pieces. And we lifted the majority of the building load from that exterior. We had a steel frame on the interior, but the steel frame, a lot of it transferred, again, to those exterior walls where we had these concrete beams. And by doing that, we were able to sort of concentrate load around the perimeter. And the perimeter was very stiff because these walls are very stiff. And it helped us keep the sort of the whole thing level as we moved along with it, as we lifted it. And you're just lifting it with, I'm assuming, massive jacks. I mean, how do you actually lift a theater? And how long does it take for it to get to where you need it to be? There were a total of 54 lifting posts, 42-inch diameter caissons, which were drilled approximately 36 feet deep all around the perimeter of the theater below the ring beam, which Ben was just describing to you. Each one of those had a jacking mechanism, almost like an inverse jacking mechanism that was lifted by four individual hydraulic jacks under each plate. The lift itself went in four to six inch increments. At first we, you know, played with it a little bit. I think it was about an inch at a time, if I'm not right. Yeah, a little testing. A little testing. To see if it actually moves. <laughs> and then eventually the strokes, you know, grew larger and larger. As we did each stroke, then we would tie off the bolts, 
below the jacking mechanism to make sure that the theater stabilized. And every day we'd go incrementally larger and larger lift. With more confidence. With more confidence. So the entire lift itself took approximately two weeks at first. And then we waited uh, another four weeks until we stabilized the structure at the top. And we did our second lift, which went another 15 feet. So 15 feet and then 15 feet. So 30 feet total. Approximately. Is that right, Ben? About 30 feet altogether. I don't know. We say 30, 31. About 30 feet. So you essentially went from ground floor to third floor, did you say? That's right. Correct. Correct. It's important to note that because this hadn't been done, there was no system in which to do this. Yeah. So the jacking system that Joe described, you know, that evolved over a period of time from when, you know, the project was first conceptualized as to when it was actually done. And the team really innovated a lot of different ways in which to keep those jacking systems coordinated and elevated and actually wound up going up a lot faster than years before it was thought that it would happen. We were monitoring the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. We're sitting there with all of us sitting huddled around a computer. <laughs> we're under the building that we're lifting, right? <laughs> huddled around a computer and we can get readings on everything, yeah. on everything, right? Like, you know, the temperature upstairs, you know exactly how much things tilt. You know, if there's a crack yeah. on the third floor, you could tell how many millimeters it opened without going into the building with, I mean, granted, we're sitting below the building. Maybe that wasn't, but you could just measure everything, which is- you know, That's confidence, Ben. Well, I think that's how it goes, right? If you're the engineer yeah. and the builder and the architect, you have to stand under while they're lifting it. <laughs> it's a rule. We were monitoring the stroke of the jacks, the movement of the theater. We were doing constant vibration monitoring, crack monitoring, you name it. And how is that done? I'm assuming that's all sensors. So how many sensors are you, and how are those installed, and how do you do that part? It sounds like a whole project in itself. There were sensors located on each of the lifting posts. There were also sensors located on the surrounding buildings and inside TSX Broadway as well. There were also movement sensors which were placed on other properties which are across the street just to locate, understand the position of the theater as it relates to the original position of the theater, make sure it didn't move east or west, north and south. So constant monitoring. Wow. And constant monitoring is good, but it's also bad because sometimes <laughs> the harder thing is actually not seeing when you have a problem. It's trying to figure out when it's not actually a problem, when it's just a glitch or a, mm-hmm. a minor thing or, you know, something shake just a little bit in the mm-hmm. sensors. You know, that's actually harder to sit there and justify and say, you know what? Yeah, we feel like we're good. We're going to keep going. That happened a couple of times. Right. That's probably a huge decision because it could be nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And you could just keep moving through it and, or it could be catastrophic. And you, it's just the first step of that catastrophe. That's right. It's like monitoring your 401k on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Bill mentioned well. that the, you know, the evolution of lift really kind of evolved over time. It really started probably about five years ago. That's right, Ben, the original design concept. Maybe even longer, but keep going. Okay. So the original design contemplated a method of lifting the theater utilizing a slab lift concept in which we would be placing slabs on the subcellar level and lifting them in conjunction with the theater. Subsequently, that design changed and we introduced the lifting post mechanism along with other stabilization methods. But as Ben described to you earlier, the stabilization of the orchestra slab done on the inside of the theater, there was very little in terms of stabilization of the existing structure, the existing plaster on the inside, aside from that which was we found to be unstable prior to, meaning there was no mechanical means of stabilizing the existing plaster. So we went around, we surveyed all the existing plaster to make sure it was stable before the lift, but there was no structure placed underneath the plaster to make sure 
that was in place during the lift. That was just, you know, us betting upon the fact that, you know, everything was going to go smoothly. Yeah. I think Joe brought up a good point, which is that we came into this thing when we were five, six years ago, our whole team with an idea how we were mm-hmm. going to do it. And it just kept building and morphing over time. And we kept looking back at it and people had different ideas and we kept revisiting it. And when we got in the final lift, it was very different than those original drawings. We usually mentioned Tony Mazo from Urban, who's sort of the overseer and the grand thinker on this thing who kind of put this together. But we as a team kept rethinking it and re-looking back at it. And I think that was sort of critical, the idea that we kept, we didn't try to stick with what we had day one. We just kept trying to reinvent it. And if we had a good idea, just scrap what we had and start new and move along. I think that's kind of universal, the approach. I mean, across the board on this project, every team, the client, everybody, it was very beneficial that nobody necessarily got attached to any idea that happened up front and was always open to changing it, which is really why the project, partially a good reason why the project was successful. And I alluded to it a little bit before, but creating the place for the theater to be lifted into was another effort that really required a tremendous amount of thought and coordination across the board in everybody's teams. Because like I mentioned before, we needed to keep 25% of the floor area of this building. And we needed to also create a pocket for the theater to go. And we needed to create all this new structure and thread it through there. So everything from day one of demolishing the place, we weren't able to move anything without going back to this document, making sure we were keeping it. And then creating a structure in which for all those things to reside and to have this pocket was a tremendous effort by the team as well. Right. Bill's team, anytime we asked to cut a hole, right, Bill's team would be reimagining how much retainage we had and where we were going to save it. And did this count? And was this okay? And these are complicated things on any other job you don't think about. Like, I need a hole, put a hole. But every little thing had to be looked at. They spent a lot of time doing it. Going back to what Bill was talking about before, we obviously had to create a slot into which the theater could be placed. So the demolition of the existing steel box girder, steel truss above the theater, was really crux in terms of the timing in which we could lift the theater. So we had to remove the existing steel truss work, which was supporting the entire hotel above the theater between the ninth and the 12th floor, and install a new concrete box girder. This all before the theater lift happened. So you can imagine that prior to the theater lift, we were doing the excavation, installing all these caissons. And at the same time, yeah, what was happening above the theater was tremendous. We had to demolish the existing steel truss work and install a new box girder. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen as much concrete in one place as I did the series of days when that was being poured. That's right. Concrete was placed in approximately 800 cubic yard increments day to day. Some pours were larger. But on average, it was four 800 cubic yard placements. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Architects, listen up. Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world and is going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. I know this community of small firm architects very well, and I see, I see many of you struggling. That's why I reached out to this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online. It's remote. And by filling out just a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There's a link in the show notes. It's betterhelp.com architect. Just use that link, betterhelp.com architect. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. If you need someone to talk to, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the show notes or visit betterhelp.com architect. That's betterhelp.com architect. Thank you to BetterHelp for supporting this podcast and for supporting our community of small firm architects. For over 30 years, RCAT has been providing AEC professionals with high quality and up-to-date building product information. Today, RCAT.com is much more than a product catalog with BIM, CAD, and specifications created in collaboration with manufacturers. Beyond that, RCAT.com also offers lead data, continuing education resources, newsletters featuring the latest projects and products, and don't forget, detailed podcasts. RCAT.com is truly the one-stop shop for everything architecture. Try it out. Go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. What was the sequence? Was the hotel completely demolished or was part of that remain as well? The hotel was demolished. So the theater remained and everything else around it was demolished and was new. Well, not really. We kept a lot of pieces of the existing building, again, to get a 25% retainage. We had big chunks of, of structure that had to stay, floor area, walls. Again, when we dug out another basement below, we were basically, again, taking out the legs of structure that had to remain on the rest of the building. So that was all required by approvals? That was all part of getting the original approval? It was, because in New York City and in most other places, if a building is overbuilt and it exists in that way, you're able to keep that overbuilt floor area but the project must remain in alteration because the second you remove it, I mean, it can even go with a small analogy. If you, you see somebody tearing down a little house and they keep that little awkward corner of the foundation because it's, you know, built in a setback, it's on a much larger scale. That's ostensibly what we've done here. And this happens all the time in New York City, but it generally doesn't happen while moving the theater up 30 feet and creating a place for it to live. The remnants of the existing structure are still visible if you were to go through some of the retail spaces on the lower floors. So speaking to what Bill was talking about before, you know, there's so much retained slab area that was, you know, had to be left in place. It was almost like threading a needle as we were coming up the building with our new superstructure. So we had to contemplate the location of existing steel beams, existing floor spaces, columns, and the creation of the new structure in and around the existing which is at times extremely difficult. And if all of that wasn't enough, Joe's team had to do the majority of this demo during COVID when half mm. the world was shutting down. <laughs> wow. So th- I want to make sure I got the sequence right. So you do some demolition in order to remove what needs to be removed. Some of it remains in order to keep the essential structure of there so you can use that to your advantage as you build a new structure. When you say overbuilt, it means that there was more there than what would be allowed to be built today, right? Sure. It was about 85-ish thousand square feet that would have been allowed to be built if you 
put a new building there. So obviously that has tremendous value right. when it comes to whether it's the hotel portion or the retail or any of these other portions. It's 80-something thousand square feet in the middle of Times Square. This is pretty darn valuable. So yeah. we had to take the retainage of the 25% of the existing building pretty seriously, or very seriously. And then when the sequence of the lift in reference to the rest of the structure are you building a structure around this before it's lifted or after it's lifted? When does the new structure and the lift happen in the sequence of it? It was very much all happening at the same time. So as I mentioned before, we had to create the new box girder to allow to create the slot for the theater to be lifted into. After that was constructed, then the theater lift could technically begin. It didn't mean that everything was done in in and around the remaining sure. parts of the structure. So at the same time that the lift was happening, there were other components of the West Tower and that were being built. So to clarify a little bit, because we've mentioned the box girder, but to really kind of explain what that is, it's almost like a tabletop mm-hmm. that was built on top of the portion of the building that we retained, in which the theater could then be supported by, create that box, as well as was able to support the hotel above. So... While all this stuff is happening, the floors are being built, you know, above that tabletop as well, that box girder for the new hotel. So the answer to your question was really like, yes, it was all happening. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they would do whatever work they could. It didn't matter whether it was sort of how the schedule was planned originally, but if it was available, you know, they'd grab it and do it. I mean, if I recall, we were building some of the foundations as we were topping off the tower. Right. Right. On the South Core. Because they would take whatever work they could, and, and like I said, they needed to lower something, so they might do it when they were you know, almost topped out, which is sort of counterintuitive, but it was whatever work was available. The site was so tight. There were elements of the theater lift which interfered with permanent structure. So there was comeback work after the theater was lifted. We had to move caissons, the lifting caissons, and some stabilization measures that are in place to allow for new structure to be completed. So there are parts and pieces here and there which we needed to come back to. It's also worth noting that, you know, all of this selective, very surgical type demolition that had to happen within all of that, you still had to get rid of all the stuff that you demolished in the middle of Times Square, which (laughs) in and of itself would be a challenge. Even if you were just going and destroying an entire building recklessly, you know, not recklessly, but, you know, indiscriminately, Mm -hmm. getting rid of all that stuff in Times Square would be hard enough. But doing that in a surgical fashion while building other elements and raising the theater was really quite a construction challenge for Joe's team as well. You're bringing back memories of when we were dropping debris down the elevator shafts and closely monitoring the vibrations in the theater. So, wow. And we're just talking about a little piece of the project, right? I mean, the theater and the lift itself, I mean, that's just a part of the overall project. Pretty massive. I mean, it's a 550,000 square foot project. Mm -hmm. You know, 48, 46 yeah. stories. I mean, it's $2.5 billion project. The theater is just a little piece of it. Oh, 100%. I mean, you have all the hotel floors. The circulation, the vertical circulation in this building was really an immense challenge to do because you have all these incongruent elements, whether it's hotel, theater, retail people potentially all these people have to get in and out and most importantly get out of the building all without interfering so the way the egress worked in this building was really quite challenging and making sure everybody could safely exit without having by way of example a hotel guest just be able to walk in 
on a floor into the middle of the theater or something like that. That was a huge challenge that had to be dealt with. And then we built new front of house and back of house spaces for the palace theater. It's a new lobby because the old lobby was gone that you come up to. There's a hotel lobby as well, the small hotel lobby on the ground floor that takes you up to a sky lobby. There's food and beverage aspects of it. There's We didn't even talk about the display, the exterior display of the building with the doors that open up for the stage. There's the facade itself, which Perkins Eastman, should mention Perkins Eastman design, that has integrated LED lights into the whole facade going all the way up that was never done before. So there was a lot of things happening all at the same time here. Aside, the theater kind of gets the headline as the cool thing that's never been done before, but there was a lot of other things happening. And, you know, obviously the three of us are here, but I can tell you from my team, I mean, there's been dozens of people over the last six, seven years that have contributed on this project and made some real Herculean efforts. And I'm sure everybody else could say the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. How was the team assembled? I mean, this is an iconic project, right? This is a world-renowned building and a world-renowned location. You're going up against, you know, the biggest, most successful firms in the world for this project, I'm sure. How does this team get this project? It's interesting. The project originally had a different developer, and there was another architect, PDBW, who actually wound up doing the theater restoration. It had a different version of this project. The project came to our firm via my old boss, one of our older partners, who had a relationship and brought in. I will tell you that the team we had at the beginning of this project versus the team we had at the end of the project was completely different. And, you know, in no way does that meant to disparage anybody that was on the team originally. But I'll tell you, originally, because it's a project that hadn't been done before, we didn't necessarily have all the expertise in-house we needed. And we brought in a lot of really talented people who really bolstered this team over the years. But again, it was certainly an evolution of our team. And then again, that's in no way to minimize the contributions of the people that worked initially on it. They worked like crazy and, and really hard and creative. But there's, there's actually one person, a gentleman named John McCampbell, who was on the project from start to finish. And now that the project's nearing to a close and he's working on other things, I always say it's almost like we have to reassimilate him to civilization here in the office and to working on regular projects. You know, I thought it was nice in the beginning, we were all working close together in the same office space, Pavarina McGovern, Severud, Mancini Duffy, and L&L ownership. And that really helped to really bring everybody together, troubleshoot the issues, and things are coming up on a day-to-day basis, and we need to be on top of them. I could just walk over to John McCampbell, Jenna, Burke, and have a conversation with them and figure out a solution. We didn't have the time to wait to you know, push things off. We really had to tackle things as they came up. That's a critical piece of it, I'm sure, to have the team all in one place that can happen like that. Absolutely. And all credit to LNL Holdings for that, the developer, because that's what they did. They rented a space specifically for this project, for this team, and insisted that we have our team members there. And it really did pay dividends. Like Joe said, he's able to walk over to one of our people or somebody else and have a conversation versus, you know, a series of emails. And it's, you know, it's also as most people in our industry know, it can be very easy over an email to, to send a snarky response or deflect or be a bit of a jerk and not necessarily be as productive as you need to be and to solve a 
problem. It's a lot harder to do that when the person's sitting two chairs down from you and, and looking right at you. So it really eliminates that and makes it a more team-oriented environment to work towards solutions rather than deflecting things and saying passive-aggressive emails. Has this project impacted the way you do future projects for your firms? Absolutely. I would speak for my team and say that, like I mentioned before, at the beginning of this, we didn't necessarily have a full team that was capable of doing this type of work that had never been done before, obviously. And now we do. Now, you know, over the years, we've had people, We, I mean, Joe mentioned Jenna and John, we, Tony, we have a lot of folks here that really now know how to do this stuff. And we can, from our standpoint, it allows us to do a larger type of project or a more difficult type of project that perhaps we wouldn't have done eight, 10 years ago. Well, as we wrap things up, I would like to, I mean, fascinating project, fascinating story. I really, really love to hear the details of how the theater was lifted, the building, but I really love the people part of it. Understanding that the team was all in one location throughout the project is probably a critical piece of the success of the project. As we wrap up, I want to ask you all the question that I ask all my guests. And this could be, you know, reference to anything that we talked about today, lessons you learned throughout the project, or just some other thing that you could sort of share with our audience. Bill, I'll start with you. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Have a zero tolerance policy for egos. Oh, I love that. That was a great, great answer. Period. Done. <laughs> yeah. Joseph, Ben, what are your thoughts on that question? From my end, I would just say, again, take everything fresh, take everything new. We started this job thinking it was going to be one way and it came out a different way. We didn't just try to stick what we had and try to adjust it. We just said, let's look at it fresh and look at it new. So when you're running your firm, just take everything and don't try to like, you know, shoehorn things into the way they were. Just look at it fresh and see if that works for you. And and maybe you'll make a change and think of it differently. Yeah. Good lesson, Joseph. No, I would agree. You know, you need to be able to evolve and be able to be open-minded to understand the problems that are in front of you and think outside of the box. That's really what got us to where we are today. Yeah. All comes down to people, right? Mm -hmm. Right on. Bill Mandara, Joseph Levi, and Ben Alper, thank you for joining us today. The firms are Mancini, Duffy, Pavarini, McGovern, and Severud. Mancini-Duffy.com is the website for Mancini. STO Building Group is Pavarini McGovern's website, stobuildinggroup.com and severud.com, S-E-V-E-R-U-D, no E on the end. So it's severud.com. You can check out what they do. You can check out the TSX website as well and check out the building and the project that we've been talking about. Thank you all for joining me today. This has been a really interesting conversation about the building and about the people behind the building. So thank you. Thank you for coming by and joining us today at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. It was fun. Thank you. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a link with a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. And that's how we have grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, but most important, share a link to this episode that you just listened to. Go send it off to a friend. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to the sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in today's episode. They're all found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. 
the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Entree Architect podcast select episodes are available for continuing education credit. Go learn more at gablemedia.com slash members. And if you are a small firm architect, listen up, architects. Join us today at Entree Architect Network, the worldwide organization for small firm entrepreneur architects. That's you with monthly business training, business resources, special session webinars, mastermind groups, and a thriving community of small firm architects. Your peers are there. Hundreds of them are there already. We will provide you with the support and the encouragement that you need to succeed. Hey, and this is super exciting. This is new, coming in 2024, Entree Architect Coaches. Yes, finally, after all these years, business coaching for small firm architects. It's coming to Entree Architect Network in early 2024. Join us. Try Entree Architect Network for free for 30 days. It's free for 30 days. Visit network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. That's network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. Try it. Come join us. Try it for 30 days. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and share what you know. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. 
gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.